Okay, well, a very, very warm welcome, everybody, to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. It's a very great pleasure to welcome Barbara Sattler from Bochum University, who's our speaker this evening. Um, as I'm sure most of you know, Barbara works on issues in metaphysics and natural philosophy in the ancient world. Um, in particular, she's written on the concept of motion in ancient Greek thought and is currently writing a book on ancient notions of space. Um, her talk tonight is on paradoxes as philosophical method and their Zenonian origins. Um, I just want to let you know that there's a handout that's now appeared on the chat that you can follow along. Um, Barbara will speak for just over 50 minutes. We'll then take a five minute break and I'll um, manage questions. So if you have a question, just put Q in the, um, in the chat. If you have a follow-up, just put F for finger um, or follow-up indeed um, in the chat. And I'll, I'll try and manage that in, uh, in a, a helpful and fruitful way. So without further ado, wonderful to see you, Barbara, and over to you. Thanks a lot, Bill. And thanks to everybody for zooming in. Um, the, the main point of my paper today is to show that paradoxes can be used as a kind of method and that this is the way we find it first introduced into philosophy by Zeno. Um, so that there's other ways of using paradoxes and other people are responsible for introducing that, but I will zoom in um, on this way of using paradoxes. If we look at the landscape of paradoxes, um, then we see that there are paradoxes that are intended to show that uh, the objects of our inquiry are inconsistent. So, you know, there are some inconsistencies in the world. Um, paradoxes that show that our conceptual tools are um, problematic, and then those that show a tendency in language uh, to become entangled in difficulties. And paradoxes of all three kinds to do with reality, conceptual tools, um, or language can be used as a method I want to show of investigation. And by a method here, I don't simply mean that they are methodologically used in the sense of systematically used over, over and over again, but I mean that they are used as a tool in order to test whether we may have chosen a problematic path in our investigation. Understanding Xeno as being connected somehow with introduction of a method, I think also fits with the ancient testimonies we have. They consider Xeno as a thinker that is relevant for questions of method. So for instance, uh, we are told that Aristotle allegedly um, saw Xeno as the inventor of dialectic and Plato in his Phaedrus puts Xeno in the context of um, practicing antilogike techne. Now they don't connect, Plato and Aristotle don't connect Zeno with a techne or a method that is called the paradoxical method or something like this. But I think um, at least uh, part of the reason for that is that the Greek word paradoxon only starts being used as a noun and as one that's relevant for philosophy um, with Aristotle. And we will see that in Aristotle it has a slightly different meaning. What I'm going to do now is I'll have first look at how we should understand paradoxes for this kind of investigation. Then I'll give a brief overview over Sinus paradoxes uh, and then try to show that the way he employs them is different from his predecessors. Um, I'm going to read most of the paper, not all of it in order to don't keep you too long, but um, I'll keep, um, talk about, um, read most of it. Also at the end, there's, um, there's a couple of redundancies, so I'm trying to leave those out. Okay, so what do we understand by paradoxes? I start with Sainsbury's understanding of paradoxes as, I quote, an apparently unacceptable conclusion derived by apparently acceptable reasoning from apparently acceptable premises, unquote. Um, so this is, so this is my starting point. Rescher has argued in his book about paradoxes against talking about acceptable because um, being acceptable is a matter of yes or no, he thinks, while it's important that we get different degrees of plausibility in paradoxes. 
for Russia, a paradox arises when a set of individually plausible propositions is collectively inconsistent. Um, and for him, the inconsistency at issue must be real rather than merely apparent. So he wants to make sure that we have, we are dealing with strong paradoxes. Now, for our understanding, I think we should leave in the reference to apparent for two reasons. First, it sometimes just takes centuries to figure out whether an inconsistency is real or apparent, right? Um, so what may be a real inconsistency at one time with the conceptual tools available at one time may be understood only as an apparent one uh, at a later time. So I think for if you, if you do deal with the history of philosophy, it's useful to have the apparent in there. But also, secondly, if we look at contemporary debates, there is not always agreement on the question whether a paradox presents a real inconsistency or not. Um, so there are quite a few disputes about some strong paradoxes. So I'll, I'll leave in the apparent here in order to mark the possibility of an epistemic position of uncertainty. In contrast to Sainsbury, Rescher's account does not explicitly mention our apparently acceptable reasoning. So um, Sainsbury mentions the premises, the reasoning, and then the conclusion we get into, and, and uh, Rescher doesn't even mention the reasoning. However, some form of reasoning, I think, must take place um, in order to show the collective inconsistency of the um, premises um, that um, Rescher assumes. Now, unless that is, we assume a kind of divine point of view where we just see the inconsistency, right? But I sort of say, take a human point of view where we mention the reasoning as a separate point um, because something can go wrong there, right? So it, it can be that we have actually um, um, true premises, but in the process of reasoning, something goes wrong. So that's why I put them in. Um, we may, for instance, in, in Sino's um, uh, moving um, error paradox think that there's something gone wrong in the in the reasoning. Okay, how shall we now characterize the premises? As we just saw for Russia, it is important that the premises are plausible, for it explains why it's possible for us to get into inconsistencies and how we can solve paradoxes. So we get into paradoxes for Russia because our modes of reasoning are valid when applied to true premises, but they can yield um, contradictory conclusions when um, applied to um, plausible premises. And Rescher's method of paradox solution can be captured as finding the least plausible premises in the argument, the removal of which will then free us from the paradox. Um, I think it's worth mentioning against Russia that it's uh, not only plausible premises, but also acceptability comes in degrees. But whatever the exact relationship between acceptability and plausibility, I think what's actually really important for um, the premises of a paradox is that they seem to be true. So they have this force of seeming true. Um, and plausibility, I don't think, needs to have the same pull. In most cases, not all of the premises of a paradox can be true. So some premises will be only in the neighborhood, so to say, of true premises, but they all seem to be true. Otherwise, we could get rid of a problematic premise right away and we wouldn't even get into the paradox. Okay, what is now, what now about the unacceptability of the conclusion? So why is this unacceptable? Uh, Russia thinks um, it's um, an inconsistency, therefore it's unacceptable. Kuonso, um, who doesn't give a definition of paradoxes herself, but only summarizes other definitions, suggests that the conclusion is obviously false or inconsistent. And Sergei Orms, in a talk at a joint session last summer, suggested that's a bit too narrow if we think that the conclusion has to be um, inconsistent. He thinks it's enough if we say that a paradox is such that it doesn't generate the kind of commitment to the conclusion that should stem from the acceptance of the premises and the validity of the argument. Um, now, I think there may be contexts where it is useful to understand paradoxes as simply not generating the same kind of commitment in the conclusion that we would expect given the premises and the reasoning. Um, 
the ones I will concentrate here are paradoxes that contain um, false and inconsistent um, conclusions. And the falsity in question is not simply empirical falsity, because that may be just the result of uh, a bad argument, uh, but not yet a paradox. So the conclusion will usually be uh, of a more fundamental um, uh, problem, namely it's um, an inconsistency. So that we then don't straightforwardly know how to fix um, this paradox. So summing up, we can say that the structure of a paradox can be said to be an apparently sound proof of an unacceptable conclusion. So the premises worked with seem to be true. The reasoning from the premises to the conclusion seem to be valid. And yet we end up with a problematic conclusion. And why is the conclusion problematic? Either because it is inconsistent in itself or because it is inconsistent with some known state of affairs or some principle um, or conviction we hold. Now you may think that this additional principle or conviction um, that we hold must be part of the explicit premises in order to get a real paradox. Um, and ultimately I agree with that, um, but I leave this in here that a um, conclusion can be problematic because it's either inconsistent in itself or um, inconsistent with some additional premise, simply because we will see that this plays a role when we look at Hominides and Aristotle. With them, what is called a paradox in Aristotle and uh, what may be seen as a paradox in Parmenides is an argument that when connected with some other principle or doctrine that a particular person or school may hold is shown to be problematic. Um, now, the fact that it's an additional principle and not part of the argument will also show that with Parmenides and Aristotle, we do not find the kind of internal paradoxes that we do find with Zeno. Paradoxes come in different strengths, um, and only paradoxes of a certain strength count as good, and obviously there's different criteria. If you think a paradox is only good if no solution has been um, suggested so far, then um, Sinus paradoxes don't count as good paradoxes, but I don't think that many paradoxes will be left as good paradoxes, because I think this is probably only the case of immediately after a paradox has been brought up that no solution has been suggested. But if we follow, for instance, Sainsbury's criterion that a strong paradox is one about whose solution we are still in severe and unresolved disagreement, um, then I think we should uh, call sinus paradoxes good on strong paradoxes, because there is still severe and unresolved disagreement about how to solve his paradoxes. And if we look at the ancient times, there's the additional problem that um, with several paradoxes, we not only do not have an agreed upon solution, we also don't have an agreed upon, upon diag diagnosis of the paradox. So there's a disagreement what the paradox actually is, right? And that's the case, for example, with Sinus moving rose paradox. Okay, um, just to finish off this section, I just wanna um, stress one point that may seem clear to most of us, but that's important. Uh, along the line of the paper. Um, in the background of any discussion of philosophical paradoxes, um, it is assumed, so to say, that um, the law of non-contradiction in one form or other, there's some disagreement on the form, but in one form or other, it has to hold. So um, it's clear that if we get entangled in a contradiction, that's a proof that something is wrong in our argument and that we need to find a way to change this. So paradoxes thus understood do not undermine the principle of non-contradiction, but rather use it as the most important standard um, for our reasoning. And we will see that's an important uh, point when we look at um, Heraclitus in contrast to Zeno. Okay, I'm moving on now to the next section, looking at the structure of Zeno's paradoxes. The paradoxes that are handed down to us can be divided into three series, the paradoxes of topos, the paradoxes of plurality, and the paradoxes of motion. And then there's a single paradox of the falling millet seed. 
Of Sinu's own words, we only have a few sentences. So we are not in a very good position about the original wording. And also, of course, we don't know whether Sinu may have come up with a completely different set of paradoxes that we don't um, have, right? But we can look at the ones we do have and look or whether there's a common structure of paradoxes and whether they fulfill a common function. And that's what I'm going to do now. Um, there have been frequent attempts in the scholarship to fit the paradoxes into a common pattern. Um, often they just go for the motion paradoxes, um, but um, there have also been attempts to integrate them all, all the paradoxes we have into um, a system. And uh, most prominently, this was done by Owen um, in a paper for the Aristotelian Society, in which he tried to show that um, they are all um, basically starting from the assumption that the real world is divided and then show the various problems with that. Um, so far, all these schemes have shown themselves to be wanting in the interpretation of the paradoxes, so none of them has actually been accepted. Now, while the, the paradoxes may not all fit into a common um, systematic program in the sense that they don't all start from the same problematic assumption, they may, however, all follow the same paradoxical structure in the way we just talked about in the previous section. And so that's what I'm now wanting to, to look at, whether there's a common structure, um, not the common, so to say, assumption as an individual assumption, but a way how the paradoxes are structured. If we look at uh, Plato's Parmenides dialogue, um, he has Socrates summarize the first argument of Zeno as, this is now on your handout, this is um, T1 on your um, handout, I, I quote, if the things that are are many, they must be both like and unlike, which is impossible, unquote. So the handout is in the chat for those of you who came late. Now, in what follows, Plato seems to suggest something along these lines as the general structure of Sinus paradoxes. So we can understand that something like, quote, if we assume that there is X, so for example, there is plurality, then Sinus shows that X is F as well as that it's not F. So X is F and not F um, can be understood as the conclusion that characterizes a paradox. Yeah? A conclusion that's unacceptable because it's inconsistent. In order to figure out whether this kind of structure is indeed capturing all of Sinus paradoxes, I will give a very brief overview of Sinus paradoxes. And I know this is a, a very frustrating bit of the paper, actually, because I'm not really giving any details of um, the paradoxes I'm dealing with. I've done this in other papers, and here I'm only um, looking at is there a common, so to say, paradoxical structure. Yeah? So I'm basically looking at the, at the punchlines, if you want, of the paradoxes. Okay, so of the plurality paradoxes, some can obviously be understood along the lines suggested by Plato. Um, so if there's a plurality, um, things are like and unlike, as we just heard in Plato, or in fragment B3, things are finitely and infinitely many. With others, it's less clear whether they present indeed an inconsistency or more generally an absurd result. So for example, in B1, uh, it's shown that if a plurality exists, each of the things of the plurality has to be so small as to have no magnitude at all, and so large as to be infinite. So we can understand this paradox as showing that there is a, indeed a logical inconsistency. Yeah? So something cannot be at the same time of some, namely infinite magnitude, and of no magnitude. So this would be a logical inconsistency. Alternatively, we may think that given the meaning of small and large, something cannot be um, simultaneously small and um, simultaneously large, uh, while the paradox leads us into this absurd claim. Or we may think that the um, paradox presents a conflict between showing things of a plurality to be of infinitely small or large um, extent in our experience of such things that they are of a finite size. So there would be a clash between our experience and um, the infinite largeness or smallness. Of the motion paradox, um, you all remember the, the runner paradox where basically in order to cover a finite a distance in, a, in a, a finite time, 
the runner has to first cover half of that distance of the remaining half, he has to cover half and half and half ad infinitum, right? Um, so this, and, and Achilles is a, is a variation of that where just um, Achilles and the tortoise are having a, um, a running in a little com a competitive run. So this uh, two paradoxes we may understand as um, showing that in order to cover uh, a finite distance, we have to cover infinitely many smaller distances in a finite time. So uh, we can understand them as showing that the same x, some finite distance, um, has to be both finite and infinite, and thus has to um, hold inconsistent attributes. The error paradox, the flying error that seems to be addressed, um, showing that the error is at rest seems to show rest as the contradictory opposite of motion. So, um, you know, there, rest is equated with being unmoved. Um, and then we can actually, uh, because we get from premises that show something to be at rest, we get the conclusion that shows something to be unmoved and that indicates that Zeno equated to. Um, and if we understand the paradox like this, it seems to show that the error is both F and not F, it's both moving and not moving or unmoved. The fourth paradox of motion is the one of the moving rows where we have um, two rows of um, equal bodies that move against each other and one a row of bodies of the same size that are at rest. And this paradox is meant to show that half the time equals double the time. So that's the um, upshot of the paradox, half the time is double the time. And again, here it's not fully clear whether this paradox presents us with a more general absurd consequence, so that half is double, or whether it's a consequence that is indeed expressing logical contradiction, namely that half the time is not half the time. Okay, the millet seat paradox shows that if one millet seat uh, does not make a sound when it falls, then a whole bushel cannot make a sound. And I think this can also be understood along the lines of X being F and not F, because we end up with the conclusion that a bushel of millet seeds does not make a sound when it falls, which contradicts, however, with our experience that a bushel of millet seed does make a sound. So we end up with the bushel making a sound and not making a sound, X, be, X being F and not F. And then finally, the paradox of topos presents us with an infinite regress. Uh, namely that if everything that exists is in a place and place itself exists, then place will be in a place at infinitum. Okay, so this was a, a quick um, overview and it was just meant to show you that um, many paradoxes of Zeno do have the structure X is F and not F, but not all can be characterized like this. Um, besides logical inconsistency, we also find um, what we may call analytical falsity or something like this, and infinite regresses. So different structures, um, we may all associate them more generally with the paradoxical genre, but um, not all um, showing the very same structure. But a characteristic that we find in all of these paradoxes is that they start from positions that are not Zeno's own, but rather widely held. So they start from the assumption of a plurality, of motion, of topoi, and they show them these assumptions to be problematic in themselves. That Zeno is not showing convictions held by himself to be problematic can be shown, for instance, from Simplicius's account of Zeno's plurality paradoxes, according to which Zeno shows that, so this is T5 on your handout, um, the person who claims there to be a plurality gets into an inconsistency. So it's the person who claims, right? And there are three fragments uh, that make it explicit that Zeno himself did indeed not share the assumptions of plurality, divisibility, and so on. That's fragment one to three in Lee. And I give you one of these, the, the second one. I just read that to you. That's T2 on the handout. For he argues, if it were divisible, then suppose the process of dichotomy to have taken place. Then either there will be left certain ultimate magnitudes, which are minima and indivisible, but infinite in number, 
And so the whole will be made up of minima, but of an infinite number of them. Or else it will, be, it will vanish and will be divided away into nothing, and so be made up of parts that are nothing. Both of which conclusions are absurd. It cannot therefore be divided, but remains one. Further, since it's everywhere homogeneous, if it is divisible, it will be divisible everywhere alike, and not divisible at one point and indivisible at another. Suppose it therefore everywhere divided. Then it's clear again that nothing remains and it vanishes. And so that if it's made up of parts, it's made up of parts that are nothing. For so long as any part having magnitude is left, the process of division is not complete. And so he argues, it's obvious from these considerations that what is, is indivisible without parts and one. So this paradox claims that if we assume some one thing, for instance, um, a finite distance to be divisible and thus to have some kind of parts, it will not only at the same time be a plurality, but also leaves us with no way to give a consistent account of these parts. So we have two problems if you want. One is that plurality at the same time and we can't give any account of these parts. All of them lead um, to absurdities. Um, and after having shown that, um, Sino then draws the conclusion that um, in order to avoid these paradoxical results, we should assume what truly is to be indivisible without parts and thus truly one. Now we may think that showing an opponent or a common assumption uh, to get into problems with our argument is a common feature of any sort of agonistic argument culture and found in philosophy right from the very beginning, at least from Anaximander when he attacks Thales, right? Um, and thus it doesn't seem to be a feature that's specific um, to Sinus paradoxes. But what I think is special um, um, about Sino is that he shows these um, problems not from his own assumption, right? So he doesn't start from his own position. Um, he rather shows that independent of any position he holds or the Aleatics, the assumption of plurality and motion can be shown to be inconsistent in themselves, from themselves, starting from this position. Um, so he's, he's only showing that we should assume the opposite position once he has started from the, from the position of the opponent and shown within this position that it gets into um, problems. Locating the paradox completely within the position of an opponent is a move first introduced by Sino, I think. Um, and I want to show that this is the case by looking briefly at his predecessors. So I'll look um, briefly at Heraclitus, Parmenides, um, very quickly at Gorgias, and then the mathematicians um, as a background. Okay, so I start with Heraclitus because he seems to be uh, the person who first introduced um, paradoxes into philosophy, right? And Heraclitus is roughly 60 years um, older than Sino. Uh, you all probably know him with uh, paradoxical sayings like God is day and night, winter, summer, war, peace, and so on. They are not yet um, contradictions, but we do indeed find um, contradictions, real contradictions in Heraclitus. Um, and the paradox I've given you on the handout in T3 is probably the best example in case. I quote, in the same river we stab and do not stab, we are and are not, unquote. Um, I'm leaving out questions about um, authenticity and textual problems and so on. Yeah? Um, so we stab and do not stab in the same river, we are and are not. Without any further distinctions of respects or time, this seems to be a clear contradiction. So if I want swimming, at a certain spot in the Danube yesterday, and I'm going swimming there again today, then it seems I've stepped into the same river twice. But when I, I am in the Danube, um, I don't encounter the very same river for um, there will be different waters um, today. So the, the river is constantly changing since what makes a river a river, the water is constantly changing. So that we may ask in the platonic version of this paradox, whether we step into the same river even once. Now, Heraclitus's paradox suggests here that uh, this um, account of the river gives an accurate description of reality. 
some interpreters like M.M. Um, McCabe, who I just saw um, on Zoom, have understood Heraclitus as offering resolutions to these paradoxes himself. So for M.M., um, the paradox quoted is resolved by the claim in the variation of this paradox in fragment 12, which you also have on your handout, um, where it says, uh, upon those who step into the same river, different, different waters flow. So the river where the outline of the riverbank can be stepped into twice, while the river where the waters which constitute it is constantly changing. The idea here is that um, Heraclitus raises paradoxes um, or what seems to be paradoxes that can then be resolved by introducing the appropriate respects. So there, uh, as another example, that's um, the next uh, fragment on your handout, um, fragment 61. Seawater is the purest and the foulest because it produces opposite effects on different objects or perceivers. It's deadly for human beings, but life preserving for fish. So the idea is that um, Heraclitus introduces what seems like a paradox and then either in a um, variation of that paradox uh, or in the remainder of the fragment gives the a resolution of the paradox, right? So we have the paradox as the head, so to say, in fragment 61, seawater is the poorest and the foulest, and then the remainder tells us in which way we can understand it so that it uh, both seem to be true, that it's the poorest and the foulest. Um, now, if we understand Heraclitus like this, and I'm not claiming that it's false to do so, that it, it may actually be the better way to read it, but I'm, I'm remaining neutral here. I'm just saying, if we read um, Heraclitus like this um, as resolving these um, puzzles, then we do not really find paradoxes in the sense specified above in Heraclitus. No, we don't find any strong paradoxes, but we only find riddles in paradoxically sounding formulations that can then be resolved with the help of different respects. So either we say that Heraclitus does not really deal with um, true paradoxes, um, or um, if we do think he does give real paradoxes and don't follow um, MM's um, interpretation, then the paradox we find with Heraclitus um, concern the object of investigation and suggests that these objects and the world as such is paradoxical. So there's two ways of interpreting Heraclitus, one where we don't really have paradox because they're resolved. Um, and I'm not looking at that way of understanding him because I don't think it's as relevant for this paper. I'm only looking at his other way of understanding Heraclitus where basically we say we have real paradoxes, but in this case, the paradoxes concern the objects of investigation and they show that there are real contradictions in the world if you want. So both Heraclitus and Zeno ask us to change our common belief system due to their philosophy. But in contrast to Heraclitus's paradoxes, the inconsistency deployed in Zeno's paradoxes are not to be embraced, but meant to be avoided. So Heraclitus embraces this paradoxical structure. Um, and Zeno try, tries to tell, tell us that there is a paradox and we have to do something, so to say. Uh, against this. Um, what we can do, according to Sino, is either accept the opposite position, so not assuming a plurality, something like this, or um, if we look at other paradox, like the motion paradoxes, they don't tell us to assume the opposing position, right? Um, rather, they uh, may be read as suggesting that we should simply um, give up our philosophical inquiry into motion, because even if there is motion, we may not be able to find a consistent account. Or they may just kind of in general press us into looking for some way to get out of this predicament. But in any case, Sinus paradoxes are meant to stop our usual beliefs as a first step, because they violate the principle of non-contradiction. Heraclitus also questions common assumptions held by his contemporaries, but he does so by claiming that real uh, way to think about them is in a contradictory way. So we should endorse the um, paradoxical structure of reality that violates the principle of non-contradiction. 
That Heraclitus and Zeno employ the principle of non-contradiction in crucially different ways is also supported by Aristotle in his investigation of this very principle in his metaphysics. Um, there he claims, and that's also on your handout, it is impossible for anyone to believe that the same thing is and is not, as some consider Heraclitus said. So um, Aristotle himself is kind of cautious. He doesn't say whether he thinks uh, Heraclitus really tried to violate the principle, but obviously there were some people that Aristotle refers to who think that Heraclitus went against that principle. Now, I take it that in contrast to Heraclitus, most of us, I know not all, but most of us assume that in order to make progress in philosophy, we need to show how paradoxes can be resolved or avoided. So paradoxes are a kind, if you want, of warning sign that in some way we are at a dead end um, and we may have to go back to the turning um, and um, look at the crossing, whether there's a different uh, way to turn. Now, you may think that Zeno's usage of paradoxical structures is in fact not that different from Heraclitus since Zeno is engaged in setting up paradoxes. He's not engaged in solving them. But in Zeno's paradoxes, it is made clear that if we show something to violate the principle of non-contradiction, something has to change. Uh, we need to rethink our way of um, dealing with the object of investigation. So getting entangled in a contradiction is a proof that the argument or account involving the contradiction cannot stand as it is. By contrast for Heraclitus, um, the principle of non-contradiction is then a principle that does not capture what we ultimately inquire about and thus is not a reliable guide for our inquiry. So summing up, we can say that if Heraclitus is indeed presenting us with a fully fledged um, account of paradoxes, he uses them as a genre quite different to the one Zeno employs. Heraclitus suggests endorsing the paradoxical structures, while Zeno, um, Zeno's paradoxes are meant to stop us um, with our inquiry. And Heraclitus's paradoxes concern the content of investigation, well, Sinus paradoxes are meant to make us change our assumption about what truly is. Does the work as a philosophical tool, what we may see as a method to make us pause in our normal investigation and rethink our assumptions and reasoning. Okay, I'm briefly looking at uh, Parmenides now because Parmenides uses the principle of non-contradiction as a um, central criterion systematically um, um, in, his, in the inquiry in his poem, especially in fragment eight, um, in order to find out um, what are the features of what truly is. And so we may think that he is perhaps already using Zeno's method. So for instance, um, in, in fragment eight, he argues uh, for a certain understanding of what is by showing that the contrary assumption leads to absurdities or contradictions. So being is not F because um, it cannot be F because that would lead into contradiction. That's the kind of general structure. So for example, in lines three to 14, um, he investigates the claim whether being can be generated or not. And he shows that um, assuming generation would lead to um, an inconsistency. So there's two ways that something can be generated out of what is or out of what is not, and both lead to, uh, to uh, a contradiction with what he has established so far, namely that being has to be and that not being cannot be, and so therefore being cannot be generated. And you may think this is actually similar to Zeno's paradoxical method. However, what Parmenides does consistently in this fragment is to say, you cannot think P because it conflicts with Q, which I have established before, right? So Parmenides employs a standard that's sort of say external uh, to what somebody, for instance, accounting for generation would use. Um, there are two other places where you think, well, perhaps Parmenides is also looking from the position of his opponent and not just from his own position. And one is fragment six, um, where it seems that the account of the two-headed mortals, so the, the people in their normal uh, unthinking ways, um, may 
clearly get into an inconsistency and that's also on your handout. Being and non-being is regarded as the same and not the same. And of all things, there's a backward turning path. So here it seems that the mortals themselves claim that being and non-being are the same and not the same. And so that seems to be showing their position to be inconsistent in itself. But again, it's on the basis of Parmenides' strict account of what we should understand by being that their claims seem to confuse what Parmenides considers to be being and non-being and what but they themselves would probably consider to be all being, which is thus also seen as being the same and not the same. By contrast, Zeno goes a step further than Parmenides by showing that some assumptions like plurality are not only inconsistent with some Eleatic position which he or Parmenides may hold, but are inconsistent in themselves. A point we find explicitly made in Simplicius's account of Sinus plurality paradoxes that are already referred to above. So this is the quotation again, T5, where Simplicius says in Sinus book, in which many arguments are put forward, he shows that um, a person who says that there is a plurality is stating something self-contradictory. Yeah, so it's um, something that is um, inconsistent in the position and not inconsistent with um, an Eleatic um, assumption. So the, what Zeno does is showing that uh, the assumption of plurality undermines itself without relying on any um, Eleatic claim. And by contrast, Parmenides shows in his, in his poem shows um, the assumption of motion and plurality to conflict with Parmenides' own assumption of the one true being that he has established before. Uh, so that's uh, the difference. Um, and similar, I think, if you if you look at the, the realm of doxa, which you may think is inconsistent in itself, but again, I think it's only inconsistent if first um, Parmenides has established his own um, way of aletheia. Um, so this is this is the, the contrast to Sino, who shows that the pluralist assumption uh, do not get off the ground because by assuming plurality, they have to make inconsistent claims. Yeah? So we don't have first to show any Eleatic assumption and then show the inconsistency of the mortal assumption with that, but he shows, Sino uh, shows the inconsistency from the assumption of the mortals themselves. Now, Pamina's argument may nevertheless be seen as paradoxical in a way if we take into account the usage of the word paradoxon in ancient Greek. In everyday Greek, the adjective paradoxos refers to what is uncommon or different from what is expected. It is against para, uh, the usual expectation, doxa. I, it's not fitting common opinion. It's strange or shocking and thus needs explanation. It's the opposite of what is endoxos, i.e. what is generally approved or acknowledged. And you may think that Parmenides' austere account of what there is, the only the one absolutely simple being, may be seen as paradox in this original sense of the word. The first person to use the noun in Greek philosophy, paradoxon, as a technical term is Aristotle in his Organon. In his sophistical refutations, 165b, Aristotle tells us that those who argue as competitors and rivals have five aims, refutation, falsity, paradox, solecism, and reducing the opponent in the discussion to babbling. So thus he lists paradoxes in a competitive context um, where paradoxes are the third best after refutation and showing the opponent to say a falsity. Aristotle does not understand paradoxes as a neutral tool or mode of inquiry. And a few pages further on, he suggests paradoxical statements to be drawn with respect to specific school doctrines. Yeah, so it's a kind of encouragement to do that. So here we're not dealing with what we understood to be strong paradoxes before, um, and they are tied to assumptions of specific schools. While Parmenides does not show specific school doctrines to be paradoxical, he demonstrates the thinking of the mortals to be inconsistent with respect to his own thought and thus in relation to a certain doctrine. By contrast, what we find in Sinu is the attempt to show motion, plurality and topos to be inconsistent, independent of any specific school or philosophical doctrine. 
Okay, given the understanding of the Greek word paradoxon, we should not be surprised that in his discussion of Zeno, Aristotle does not talk about paradoxes. Rather, in most cases, he fairly neutrally talks about Zeno's logos, um, sometimes about his axioma, his aporia, and only once does he talk uh, about Zeno paralogizetai, so Zeno reasoning falsely. While Aristotle in his account of paradoxes still claims an assumption to be inconsistent with a particular position someone holds, the important methodological move we find in Zeno's paradoxes, I think, is to show that some basic and widespread assumptions are inconsistent in themselves. Okay, I'm finally rounding off the section with a very brief view on Gorgias and the mathematicians. Um, some people think that Gorgias was the inventor of philosophical paradoxes and method because it's a common methodological move in Gorgias' poems to provide us with seemingly exhaustive dichotomies of a certain realm of which he then shows that none of the disjunctions are possible. Now, Gorgias is, however, younger than Zeno, and I've tried to show elsewhere that he, um, at least in some of, the, of his um, uh, accounts, builds quite clearly on Zeno's paradoxes. So, for instance, on his Topos paradox. So, while we may understand part of uh, Gorgias's oeuvre as using a similar paradoxical method as Zeno does, with Gorgias we find some further refinement of the paradoxical structure that's first established by Zeno. And also with Gorgias we find how this paradoxical method can also lead down the, the, the way to nihilism, right, which I don't think we find with Zeno. Okay, finally we may think that a methodological employment of paradoxes derives from outside of philosophy, namely from the realm of the mathematicians. Mathematical reductio ad absurdum proofs as we find it paradigmatically in the proof for the incommensurability between the diagonal and the side of the square, function similarly to the uh, to Zeno's paradoxes. And now our evidence for this proof is Euclid, so that's quite a bit later, but the knowledge of incommensurability is a good deal older than Euclid and um, ad absurdum proofs may as well be a good deal older. But how old exactly uh, they are is um, impossible to say. Um, they probably date to the fifth century BCE. Um, and that still leaves it open whether, uh, and if so, to which degree Zeno may have been influenced by the mathematicians or whether it may even be the other way around. Okay, this was looking at the predecessors and I'm now just wrapping up um, by um, summarizing um, how Sino uses uh, paradoxes as a method, in my view. Heraclitus, Parmenides, and Sino all attempt to change our common assumptions with their philosophy. Um, but in contrast to Heraclitus and Parmenides, Sino's paradoxes do not encourage us to embrace the paradoxes and to show uh, common assumptions to be paradoxical um, uh, within their own, on their own ground. So we can say what's specific for Zeno's paradoxes are two points. A, they show the philosophical assumptions of an opponent to be problematic from within this opponent's position, um, in contrast to Parmenides. Um, and B, uh, in contrast to Heraclitus, they don't uh, require us to endorse um, the um, contradiction, but they basically um, ask, uh, take the contradictions as a clear sign that at least some of the assumptions on which the rest have to change. So Zeno's paradoxes leave us in a situation in which we do not even know where to start in order to deal with them. Uh, they force us to pause in our usual assumptions and stop our inquiry in the way it proceeded so far. And thus they prevent us from simply accepting common, seemingly unproblematic assumptions. David sadly has recently suggested that the central claim of Zeno's Topos paradox, and that's again on your handout, um, that's T6, so that I just quote there, everything that exists is somewhere, but if place is an existent, where would it be? Presumably in another place, and that place in another place, and so on and so forth. 
And Aristotle immediately translates this and so on and so forth into ad infinitum, yeah? but this is a, a version from Eudemus. And sadly suggests that um, this ending of the paradox and so on and so forth consciously leaves open how Zeno proceeds. Yeah? So Aristotle translates it into an um, ad infinitum, but it's actually left open. And uh, Zeno only presents the skeleton of an argument that's then to be developed in oral debate according to the audience, yeah, depending on how the audience reacts. Now, if Sedley is correct, Zeno drafted his paradoxes in a way that could be adjusted to the respective opponent and thus worked as a method to show different opinions to be problematic. While Heraclitus' paradoxes can be seen as concerning the content of inquiry, Zeno's paradoxes can be seen as the beginning of a method for philosophical inquiry. We may think that showing the object of our inquiry to be inconsistent and there to be inconsistencies in reality as Heraclitus does is also an important move in philosophy. You may think that, but it's clearly a different usage of the paradoxes. Furthermore, we may think that Zeno like Heraclitus is attempting to correct a mistaken assumption about reality we hold and thus also just dealing with a certain content. However, however by making it clear that the paradoxes are not to be embraced, but rather are a stopping point, um, which should make us rethink our assumptions. And by leaving at least some ends open to adjustment, depending on the interlocutor, Zeno employs these paradoxes not as an account about reality, but as a tool for investigation. I think in this way, Zeno prepares the ground for using paradoxes as a method of inquiry that has been employed in philosophy ever since Zeno established them and that can be very fruitful. I mean, they also have a path towards nihilism and skepticism, but there's also um, a very fruitful path that I think Zeno sketched. And we may think that this is actually um, using paradoxes in this kind of fruitful philosophical way is also a feature characteristic of the Platonic Socrates, right? Um, this Socrates frequently shows that assumptions of his interlocutors are inconsistent in themselves or incompatible with some of their other claims, independent of uh, any agenda he himself may have. Discussing paradoxes today, we do not necessarily think of a particular opponent, but the main ideas of Zeno's paradoxes to show a position to be inconsistent from within this position and to show that this is the case for some of the most basic philosophical assumptions is still the mark of a strong paradox. Given that a good deal of philosophy does not concern itself with experiments or proceeds in a way that would allow us to derive corrections immediately from the empirical realm, paradoxes are a central way of correcting our theories and philosophy. In this way, paradoxes may be seen as a kind of via negativa. They do not positively tell us anything about our object of inquiry, but they do tell us that our current assumptions about our objects are problematic. Accordingly, paradoxes stop us in our usual investigations and force us to reconsider basic assumptions. They can act like an enzyme for further conceptual developments. For example, in ancient times, Zeno's paradoxes of Topos led Plato to spell out in his Timaeus why not everything that exists has to be in a place, while it made Aristotle explicitly distinguish the different senses of in in the Greek language. And Zeno's paradoxes of motion are employed by Aristotle in his physics exactly in order to prove that the science of motion is possible that can avoid these paradoxes. So they're taken as a test to show that we, that Aristotle in his physics has now really established a science of motion. In this way, Zeno can be seen as a founder of philosophical paradoxes as a method, as a fruitful and essential corrective for philosophical investigation. Thank you.